Are you lobbying for some kind of world government that would implement this? I'm lobbying for abolishing time zones, man. Wow. Okay, well, I guess that's pretty radical. It seems unlikely. You want another idea? Yeah. <laughs> What's another idea? Instead of changing it by an hour, change it by like a minute. Phase it in over 60 days. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drake. 36 governor's seats are up for election this fall, and today we're going to zoom in on some of the most competitive and consequential ones. In particular, we want to look at places where full control of state government might be decided by the governor's race, and where Republicans falsely claimed that the 2020 election was fraudulent. Think about states like Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. We're also going to take a look at some new data from one of last year's gubernatorial elections. After Republican Glenn Youngkin won in Virginia, much of the campaign analysis focused on the role education played in shifting support towards Republicans. Was that a correct conclusion? We'll talk about it. We'll also talk about some of the biggest legislative news out of Washington last week. You guessed it, the effort to make daylight savings time permanent. The country tried it before in the 70s, and it wasn't popular. So should we expect different results if we try it again? Here with me to discuss our editor-in-chief, Nate Silver. Hey, Nate. Hey, everybody. Also here with us is politics editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, y'all. And elections analyst, Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. All right, let's begin with the lighter topic, or darker, depending on what time you wake up. Ha, 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 ha. Forgive the pun. (laughs) You can't laugh at your own joke. (laughs) <laughs> nicely, nicely done. Nicely done. Um, anyway, uh, I hope you all appreciated that pun. Let's talk about daylight savings time. Last week, the Senate unanimously approved a bill called the Sunshine Protection Act, which would make daylight savings time permanent, shifting more daylight to the end of the day year round. This wouldn't be our first experiment with permanent daylight savings time. In 1974, President Nixon signed a similar bill. The switch was meant to last for two years and help with the gas crisis, but the experiment was ended early by President Ford as American approval fell for the permanent time change. Now it'll be up to the House and President to decide whether we make daylight savings time permanent again. First question, just setting the scene here a little bit before we get into this fierce debate. Why do we have daylight savings time in the first place? It seems to date back to World War I, at least in its original use in the United States. And the idea was to increase the amount of time that people were up where there was daylight because the thought was, oh, hey, it'll conserve energy. There seems to be some debate over whether energy was actually saved. That's sort of the origin in the U.S. It came back during World War II, was repealed again. And then in the mid-60s, it was established more permanently with the idea of having six months where you had daylight savings time and six months where you didn't. And then obviously in 1974, as you mentioned, uh, there was an attempt to go to, or at least to try out permanent daylight savings time, which proved, I think, initially popular, but then people had to deal with really dark mornings and decided, hey, I don't really like this as much as I thought I did. So- Since we've tried this before, and we at least have six months out of the year where we do it, have we been able to collect data on how daylight savings time affects productivity or sleep or happiness or whatever good things we might want from how we set our clocks? 
I mean, my understanding is that sleep experts don't think that this is a particularly good idea and that we should stick with standard time. It has something to do with the body getting too much light during the day or, or something about the rhythm of your sleep patterns being helped out if you don't get that extra daylight time. You know, I, I think there's going to be pushback from other quarters. You know, I think traditionally agriculture has been opposed to daylight savings time because switching the clock screws up the patterns they've sort of set out. So, you know, there's going to be some opposition, even if this thing actually happens. It's just a question of do people who currently in some polling say, hey, actually, I like the idea of permanent daylight savings time, question of whether or not they change their minds, much like people did in the 1970s. I definitely was part of the school generation where it was like, oh, farmers are a fan of daylight saving time because it helps maximize daylight. And it's like, if you read back through history, that has nothing to do with it at all. Farmers were one of the more vocal groups that opposed it. And there seems to have been like both in the World War One, World War Two, and then in the 1970s, this idea that, oh, it will help minimize people's use of electricity. And that just hasn't proven to be the case. Um, and so then as Jeffrey was saying, you know, right, like sleep scientists kind of argue that it's disruptive for people's sleep patterns, particularly older Americans. And yeah, there's not a lot on the table that daylight saving time has, you know, done that's been good for the country. Wow. Well, hold on here. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Hold the fuck on. <laughs> As like the night owl of the group, I mean, I don't want to waste daylight when, well, first of all, here's a, there are a couple problems, right? Problem number one, there is only a fixed amount of daylight in a day. You can't add more daylight or subtract any daylight. We have the same amount of daylight. Um, Nate, yes. this is the United States of America, and if we want to pass more daylight, we can. <laughs> so what the pro-standard time people say is like, well, if you switch to standard time, then like kids will have to go and get their school bus in the morning when it's dark out. To which I say, f*** you, make school start later then. There is, like, no reason why we can't, like, actually more intelligently, like, coordinate our schedules around actually maximizing daylight. I think having daylight savings time probably does a better job of that than not. You know, I mean, here's the other radical position, which is that—I'll give you the less radical one first, and then we'll get into more radical. The less radical position is that a lot of the United States is in the wrong time zone. I'm from Michigan. I like Michigan. Michigan should be in central time. That would align it better with the actual solar clock, right? New England, like Maine and stuff like that, should be in Atlantic time. It's too far east for Eastern time, and so therefore, these places have skews, but they're because they're in the wrong time zone. The next issue is we could just get rid of time zones entirely. Why is it so important that arbitrarily we consider like 7.30 a.m., the time when people wake up, have one time zone globally, Greenwich Marine Median Time, and coordinate relative to that? So in some parts of the world, Morning is at 5 a.m. and some parts of the world morning is at 5 p.m. People get used to it. It would be totally fine. We could actually more efficiently coordinate our schedules around when it's actually light or dark out. Are you lobbying for some kind of world government that would implement this? I'm lobbying for abolishing time zones, man. Wow. Okay. Well, I guess that's pretty radical. It seems unlikely. One of my questions from listening to what you said, Sarah, about the evidence that we have so far and where different interest groups might come down on the issue is... Is the thing that people take issue with the fact that we're changing the clocks or the fact that there's more sunlight at the end of the day instead of the beginning of the day? Because if sleep experts or farmers don't like changing clocks, then making daylight savings time permanent 
would still address those issues. Yeah. So honestly, the only thing where there's consensus in the polls is that people don't want to change their clocks, whether it's because they want permanent daylight saving time, permanent standard time. That's a little bit more all over the place. People aren't sure whether they want the darker evening or the darker morning. I think instead of Nate's radical, you know, universal one uh, time zone, over a third of states right now already have kind of legislation on the book that like if Congress were to approve this, you know, they would implement daylight saving time. Great. Let those states do it. In fact, Arizona and Hawaii already are following standard time year round. Why can't states set their own time zones more? I think that is a great solution to some of this. Federalism, Sarah, the podcast champion of federalism in time zones. I totally appreciate that stance. Do we have any further data on what people want? So you said people really don't like changing their clocks. That scans to me. If we really try to drill down, do Americans fall in the standard time or daylight savings time camp? more than the other? Generally daylight saving time. So, okay, in a November YouGov poll that was right before the clocks changed then, 63% said, yo, let's eliminate this. And from there, 48% said they wanted permanent daylight saving time, 29% wanted standard time, and then 21% had no preference. And I think it's that last part that's key is like, This is an issue where I feel like journalists gleefully had some fun headlines last week around this. I'm not so sure the American public really cares about this issue, despite like what Veep and other popular sitcoms would have us believe. (laughs) Okay, I feel like I hear more people complaining about it getting dark early or in the winter than I hear people complaining about it getting light later. I don't know. That's not scientific, though. That's anecdata. As we said, we tried this in the 1970s, making daylight savings time permanent. Here's some historical data. Popularity for permanent daylight savings time went from 79% supporting it in 1973 to only 42% supporting it in 1974. And then it was abolished. Why was it so unpopular when it was actually implemented? Well, it seems like one of the main complaints was that it was just during the winter months, it was just so dark for such a large chunk of the the morning. And that was, I think, particularly disturbing to parents of kids going to school, like having to start their day in just no light outside. And so that, I think, was part of the reason that there was a backlash. People really liked all the extra sunlight in the summer. But once, you know, uh, winter hit and there was just less daylight to go around, to Nate's point about, you know, there's a limited amount and it varies over the course of the year, that became uh, something that caused people to be less content uh, with how it was working. Yeah. It's no coincidence that, like, the chief proponent of this bill is Florida Senator Marco Rubio. Like, if you look at the states right now that have legislation that would essentially implement daylight saving time if Congress were to pass it, they're either southern states or they are western states, because those are states where, like, the extension of darkness in the morning would not be as severe as in other parts of the country. Hmm. Interesting. I hate to be a little bit of broken record, but, like, (laughs) people are allowed to coordinate on when they start work in school. In some places like Northern Alaska, you're not gonna have enough daylight period, right? But like in other places, you can maybe during the winter months have work or school start at nine instead of 7.55, right? 
that's logical. It's, I guess, too logical for people. But, like, that problem is, is solvable. It's logical, but it's still the same. Like, you would have to have half the year school start at one time, the other half the year another time, right? So? So what? <laughs> yeah, but then people wouldn't like that either. I think that's equally inconvenient. Yeah. Why is it that hard? Right now, we're switching everything by an hour. We just have this fiction that, like, the time changed somehow, right? The time didn't actually change. We just call it something different. So we're already doing that for everything now. Why not instead do that for things for which it is important, like school and certain types of work? But then why not just change the clock? Because if you don't do one of those things that starts at 8 a.m., then it's just a pain in the ass for no gain, right? Wait, which is either working or going to school? Like, okay, first what of all, percentage of American doesn't do either of those things? Like, I understand that there are people, retired people, for example. Lots and lots and lots and lots of people don't have, like, a job that starts at, like, 8.30 a.m. or something, right? There are people working the night shift. There are people that are working from home or on their own or have independent schedules, right? There are people that, like, start at noon. They work in a casino. You're but a blackjack even then, dealer or something. if you work a shift job and everything gets shifted an hour, wouldn't that still affect you? Like, it, I'm it, saying it, it, wouldn't, sounds it like... wouldn't have to get shifted, though, right? It would only get shifted in cases that where it's optimal to shift instead of making everybody shift. Hmm. Okay. I don't know about that. What if you just have school start at nine o'clock year round and don't change it in the winter? Perfect. That would actually be, I mean, I think all these so-called sleep experts would agree with me on this, right? That like teenagers so and kids. So-called experts. So-called sleep experts. I love that. <laughs> teenagers and kids could stand to like sleep in later. They want a lot of sleep. So absolutely, school should start at 9 a.m., everywhere and then do whatever the hell you want with time zones. I don't care. But like you should not have school starting at hours beginning with seven. But then work would have to start potentially at like 9.30 or 10. So what? That's cool. I mean, here's the thing. Like work, I think, already starts like too early. There's plenty of things to do in the morning before you start work. You can go running or run some errands or do some, you know, answer a few emails from home, right? I mean, if it were me, then like, especially in this era where things are a little bit more flexible, whether you go into an office or not, for me, you know, work would start at 9.30 where you're expected in the office or 10 or 10.30, right? And you can kind of do some of your routine from home on a schedule that makes sense for you. Okay, so that's how you feel. How do we think the House and White House feel about this? Is daylight saving time going to become permanent or feasibly permanent? The House hasn't even indicated they'll take it up. They're being a, a little big game of chicken on this, I'm afraid. Hmm. All right. Well, maybe this was all for naught then. Well, I do think it's worth mentioning that you are going to maybe continue to see support for this from maybe the one group that has unquestionably benefited from daylight savings time, or at least I think there's a fair amount of evidence that people spend more money when there's more daylight. So, you know, the Chamber of Commerce loves daylight savings time. So, yeah, let's hmm. make it permanent. We don't know if they're actually conserve energy or, you know, some of the reasons they've been given in the past, but they are more likely to do things which then involve, you know, sometimes spending money. You want another idea? Yeah. What's another idea? <laughs> Instead of changing it by an hour, change it by like a minute, phase it in over 60 days. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you would barely notice. It would just be better. That sounds awful. That Why? sounds really... Of all the things I don't want to happen to our clock, I think it, that's the, the number one thing I don't want to happen. It's all digital now. You don't have to physically change the clock anymore. I mean, my microwave isn't connected to the cloud. Why does your microwave need to know what time it is? It should be. 
I mean, if you just embrace the Internet of Things, Galen, your fridge, your stove, your microwave, all of that will be connected and it'll just automatically update, right? I mean, what if someone hacks my fridge and I can't have midnight snacks anymore? They will hack your fridge because your password is password, so. Wait, do you dutifully update your microwave's clock every time it's daylight savings, Galen, or there's a power outage? You're one of those people? Do you just, like, not have a time to clock me? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the idea that that's a type of person, a type of person that would be worth persecuting on this podcast is crazy. Do you just leave your microwave with the wrong time, year, like half the year? Or when the power goes out, is it just forever gone? You'll no longer have the time on your microwave? This is not 1983. I don't think I have any devices that tell the time but aren't connected to the internet. He just leaves the microwave going zero, 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 I guess. I don't believe that. You have like a beautifully designed home. You don't even have a wall clock. No. You don't have a microwave worth the time on. I don't believe in time, man. I don't want to know what time it is. No, I don't have any. I don't think I have anything. I don't believe that. Your stove has to. I'm going to fact check this with Robbie. (laughs) Go ahead. Anyway, so I think we've solved this here on this podcast. Nate wants to establish a world government that will enforce a single time zone that everyone must live by. (laughs) Either that or no time whatsoever. He doesn't believe in time. So, uh, (laughs) folks, tell us which one you prefer. Or an increase of a minute for a whole month. (laughs) What is wrong with that? That's a perfect solution. No, we'd notice. It's just better. Um, All right. Let's move on and talk about the role that education played in last year's gubernatorial race in Virginia. So think of this maybe not so much as a good or bad use of polling, but a good or bad use of election data. So Virginia recently released data about who voted in the 2021 election, not how they voted, of course, that's secret, but demographic information about the people who showed up to the polls. The Democratic data firm TargetSmart combined that data with each county's swing compared to the 2017 gubernatorial race to draw conclusions about why Republican Glenn Youngkin beat Democrat Terry McAuliffe in a state that Biden won by 10 points just a year before. They say that this data challenges the conventional wisdom that it was, quote, because of anger over school closures, mask mandates, and supposed anger over critical race theory. So, Let's begin with the school closures aspect of that argument that they try to sort of knock down. They point to county-level swings, and they find that there is no correlation between the number of days a school was remote and its Republican share of the vote, which is to say schools that where students were learning at home or whatever because of the pandemic didn't shift any more towards Republicans than other areas of the state. In fact, they say the 10 counties with the most virtual learning days saw a below average shift towards Republicans compared with the state overall. So is this a good or bad use of election data to suggest that school closures were not a driver of the swing in Virginia? I think it's pretty bad. You think it's bad? Yeah. There are a couple of issues. One's a major issue. The major issue is that the number of days that a school was closed is not exogenous from political factors. This wasn't some like randomized control trial where in some counties you're having school open and some counties you're having it virtual, whatever else. That reflects the conditions in the area. School boards are maybe not perfectly responsive, but somewhat responsive to community views on these issues um, and political incentives. And so therefore, like places where school was closed 
are likely to be places where school closures were more popular. So that variable that seems simple is actually a very complicated variable that reflects a lot of politics, and therefore you shouldn't use it as some like independent variable in some regression model. The other issue is it is true that if you look at the map of Virginia and look at the swing relative to 2017, that the swing is relatively uniform. You didn't necessarily have huge parts of the state swinging in one direction more than others. The thing is, though, that that's actually atypical. Typically what happens over the past decade or so in almost every election is that cities and suburbs become more blue and rural areas become more red, right? So the fact that there's like not a strong shift relative to 2017 doesn't mean that there wasn't a shift relative to the counterfactual of what happened if this race wasn't about education, right? The fact that Republicans can kind of hold their own in the suburbs, not doing great. They still lost like Loudoun County by 10 points, for example, right? But they had lost that by 25 points in 2020, by 20 points in 2017. That was a county where these education issues were paramount, right? So yeah, there's a uniform swing, but the map that occurs when Republicans are competitive in the suburbs is a very, very bad map for Democrats, even in a state like Virginia, where the trends have really kind of swung their way recently. So I think this is not very persuasive on either level. Does anyone disagree? I don't disagree. I think at the end of the day, to Nate's point, basically every place in Virginia swung at least somewhat more Republican. There was like an exception or two to that, but they were very small places where you might have, you know, more likely to have a weird outlier. So I think, you know, with that in mind, it's kind of harder to say that how many days a local county had its school closed is just going to tell us very much. Now, there is a weak correlation between how Republican a place was and how much it swung from 2017 to 2021. Places that were redder swung a bit more to the right um, than places that were blue, but almost every place swung to the right. And I think ultimately the takeaway from these analyses are meant to be reductive in the sense of like, okay, education didn't play a role in these areas, and therefore education didn't have an effect on the election, and Democrats don't have a problem with education. And we just, we know that's not true. Like nationally, Democrats have been slipping on this issue. There was a post-election poll in Virginia that found that voters were 12 points more likely to trust Yunkin than McAuliffe on this issue. And I thought this was actually a caveat, which I thought was spot on, which is that one thing that's not being captured by analyses like these is the statewide effect. As Nate was saying, if you're in a district where school closures were the most draconian, but there was higher support for that, yeah, that's not going to tell you that much. And so this isn't measuring then like the statewide effect, which we saw from exit polls to polls conducted before the election, after the election, voters, you know, were souring on Democrats' ability to handle education. And so that doesn't mean that just because you didn't see that at the county level, that that wasn't still present within the election. It kind of reminds you of the phenomenon we see with crime and immigration, where oftentimes it's areas where immigration isn't ticking up, crime isn't ticking up, but people are concerned about that in those areas. One other thing to think about, too, is that the polls did a pretty good job in the Virginia governor's race, and those polls showed a shift where McAuliffe was ahead until late in the race, and then Youngkin pulled ahead and won. And that shift coincided with increasing media focus on a variety of educational issues. And also with this gaffe that I believe McAuliffe made in a debate where he kind of said that, no, parents shouldn't necessarily have a ton of of choice in schooling, right? And so that shift seems to line up pretty well with the narrative of what happened 
you know, the exit polls show that 24% of Virginians said education was their most important issue out of five issues, the second out of five issues they asked about. Youngkin didn't win those voters hugely. He won them 33-47, although typically education's a Democratic strength. I mean, this is what it's really about. Democrats are in denial of the median voter theorem, as are Republicans, by the way. Lots of political operatives are partisan, and they don't want to admit that, on average, <laughs> having a policy that's more centrist is more popular because they personally are strong left-wing or right-wing, depending on kind of which side of the punditry they line up on. And like, But empirically, one of the most robust findings in politics is that if you kind of move away from the center, it tends to hurt you. And I think Democrats kind of lost control of the center on educational issues, which is traditionally a strength of theirs. Okay, so we've kind of said here that it's hard to drill down, you know, maybe on a, a county level basis. A different data analysis from Chalkbeat tried to do that. And they controlled for exactly what your issue was originally, Nate, which is the relationship between the political inclinations of a particular area and how many days out of the year that school had in-person classes. And here they write, quote, controlling for the share of Trump voters and white voters in a given area. Hartney, who did the study, shows that Yunkin did better in places where schools were fully open for less than a month. The difference was not especially big, eight-tenths of a percentage point. Yunkin won the election by nearly two points, suggesting the shift was not decisive. Is that a better way to test this? I mean, it cut, you know, almost a percentage point they try to ascribe to school closures. Is that fair? I think this is a very hard analysis to do correctly, because when you have like a bunch of variables that are highly correlated, you know, clearly bluer states are more inclined to keep schools closed, maybe much more inclined. I'd like to see that correlation exactly. So, I mean, it just kind of makes it very hard to figure out anything, because like there are also always implicit variables. I mean, maybe there are other reasons apart from Trump voter share and white voter share why schools are or aren't closed in a given area. And again, unless you have some really clever design to overcome this, hypothetically, a good design might be maybe, I don't know if it's true in Virginia, maybe you have some parts of Virginia where there's more electoral accountability for school board members. Maybe the elections are coming up sooner or something like that. And therefore, that might provide like more of a natural experiment, but like all this analysis is like not going to tell you anything at all. Fair enough. You know, you're kind of, again, selecting for the dependent variable in a lot of ways and just a bunch of messy, ambiguous, correlated variables. I mean, this is kind of not good science. Well, I guess that's a rating in and of itself. So bad use of election polling data. Statistical inference. Yeah. So let's jump to the second half of their analysis, which is not focusing on county level data, but focusing on information about the actual voters who turned out. They said, compared to the 2017 gubernatorial election, turnout among those over 75 grew by 59%, under 30 grew by 18%, and turnout of people aged 18 to 74, which they say would include parents of school-aged children, only grew by 9%. They conclude this silver surge, so the surge in people over 75, is an untold story that fundamentally undermines the conventional wisdom that COVID-19 protocols in schools and fears about critical race theory in curriculum determined the outcome of the election. Sarah, Jeffrey, do you have thoughts on this? Is this a good or bad use of election data when we drill down into the actual demographic information? 
So this, I would say, is a better use in the sense that we know older voters tend to be more Republican-leaning. And if a lot more older voters were showing up relative to the last gubernatorial election, it follows that that would be a more Republican-leaning electorate by comparison. I'm not sure that it undermines the narratives because at the end of the day, like, I think that people can have opinions about education that could influence, you know, their position, even if they don't have kids who are still in school. So I don't, I don't want to write that off entirely. But I do think that this very much plays into one of the factors we know can affect like midterm elections or any off-year election, which is differential turnout. So if you have Republicans really unhappy with the status quo being more likely to show up, you would expect that to also mean probably more old, older voters relative to younger voters uh, showing up. So that to me is like a good data point because it does follow what we would expect in a, an election where there's a Democrat in the White House. Virginia has a pattern of you know the party that's not in the White House doing better uh, than it did previously uh, in the last gubernatorial election. So I think this is a better use. Yeah. I mean, as Jeffrey said, the fact that there's a surge in older voters turning out that roughly is kind of in line with what you would expect in a midterm environment anyway. They tend to lean Republican. And then to the point that, right, like this is undercutting this narrative that has emerged. You know, there was a piece from the New York Times over the weekend that was saying it was actually surprising who is upset by education. And they cited this Gallup poll on school satisfaction data finding that 73% of parents of school-aged children in 2021 said they were satisfied with the quality of education of their oldest child. Why oldest and not the other children? Unclear. But Gallup's been asking about this for years. Yes, that was down from 2020, but, you know, 73%, quite large. However, you know, overall, only 46% of Americans said they were satisfied with schools. And so then, you know, the piece concludes what's driving that is people who don't have children have negative feelings towards the school. So again, as, as Jeffrey was saying, you know, yes, having a kid in school shapes how you think about education, but it can also be an issue for other voters. So I'm not sure the fact that, right, like it's older voters who turned out in Virginia necessarily undermines that education affected things. Wait, but then isn't this potentially just sort of people being susceptible to partisan messaging, which is to say, I'm kind of unhappy, you know, I'm I'm one of these people who's saying that they're unhappy with schooling. I'm kind of unhappy with the direction of the country. Biden himself overall isn't popular. Inflation is up. Gas prices are way up. There's maybe plenty of reasons to be dissatisfied with the direction of the country. I'm hearing from partisans, mostly on the right, that things are going really bad in schools and it's the Democrats' fault. Then I'm more liable to just say, yeah, I think that what's happening in schools is bad, just like everything else that's happening with inflation is bad and the war is bad and, you know, Biden's leadership or the withdrawal from Afghanistan may also be bad. Is it actually about what's happening in schools then or is it just about partisan priming? No, I do think it's difficult to separate out the sort of macro situation from like, I don't think you can say I, I know that, you know, that chalkbeat analysis attempted to sort of give us a number for how much school closures mattered. But I think it's really difficult to nail that down when you have the big picture stuff going on. Over the course of that election cycle, you saw Biden's approval go from about 50% nationally in the middle of August to 46% by Labor Day, so beginning of September, 
And then by election day, it was down to 43%. Now, this is national. So maybe Virginia, which was a state that was slightly bluer than the country as a whole, it was slightly higher than that. And low in the exit poll, 46% of voters approved of Biden and 53% disapproved. But Yunkin was winning 90% of those who disapproved and picked off enough of the people who approved still of Biden to end up winning. So I think it is difficult to say just how much education mattered. But when you're trying to separate things out from what was going on in the big picture of like Biden's position sliding, uh, and maybe it's no coincidence then that Yunkin uh, ended up taking the lead in those late polls as Biden's position slid further. So, you know, the evidence that we're looking at here showing this differential turnout is something that falls right in line with what we sort of expected to some extent. Like we knew this race was going to be closer than the 2017 race. We just didn't know who was going to win because it was close overall. To me, it's just like it does back up the differential turnout idea, but it also, I think, shows that it's hard to say for sure that like education mattered X amount of points. Right. Because, I mean, look at New Jersey. That was super close, right? And education wasn't the animating issue that it was in Virginia. And to be clear, like exit polls showed that like education was important to voters in Virginia, but the economy was still more important. So there are other factors. And mm-hmm. I think trying to assign a precise, you know, this is how much education mattered in the Virginia election is kind of a foolhardy exercise because there are other things. There are things like you're saying, Galen, about education now is increasingly kind of wrapped up in how the two parties talk about it. So, right, if I'm a 75-year-old Republican voter in Virginia and don't have school-aged children but know that Democrats are doing a bad job, sure, education matters to my vote as well. But, I mean, it's still important to understand what are the two parties messaging on Mm -hmm. these issues. And then I think, as Nate was saying about, you know, the median voter idea, like, which one kind of appeals more to independence? And, you know, that was another important part of the Virginia election. I think it's a little bit naive for kind of the target smart analysis to assume that only people with children care about these issues because they're big proxy fights over COVID and over racial attitudes, which are obviously two very, very hot button issues, maybe the most hot button issues in the U.S., right? If you look at polling data, older people are actually less worried from the New York Times cited the morning consult poll. People age 65 and over, 17% are very concerned about getting COVID as compared to 23% of people age 18 to 34. Old people are like, YOLO, my risk of COVID is actually objectively much higher or severe outcomes from it, right? But like, whatever, right? They're actually less on board with COVID restrictions than younger voters are. And so there's a story now where that is expressed in a consistent way with turnout being higher. I mean, the other thing is, I think turnout and persuasion are sometimes hard to separate. You can imagine a suburban doctor or lawyer who used to vote Republican, voted for Mitt Romney, switched over to Democrats and voted for Clinton and Biden because they can't stand Trump, generally leading more blue, right? But then they kind of find this election and Yunkin seems more Romney-like to them and they think he makes some good points, but also not a huge fan of helping the GOP. And so this person decides not to vote because they're indifferent toward the outcome. So maybe someone who turns out less because they don't care so much is also something which is part of this equation. I think there's a lot of grasping at straws in this analysis. I think there's one other thing worth noting, which is um, I took a look at the numbers and there was a somewhat stronger correlation between how much turnout jumped in a place from 2021 versus the last gubernatorial election in 2017 and how red a place uh, it is. So 
the reddest places did see like the largest turnout jumps. Now, part of that is that 2017 was a democratic friendly year. So this time around, you had high turnout basically everywhere in Virginia. I mean, more than half the voting eligible population voted, which like never happens in a gubernatorial election in Virginia. But that's how you can have a situation where McAuliffe won almost 200,000 more votes than Northam did in 2017 when Northam won. But McAuliffe still lost by two points. And that's because Youngkin won almost 500,000 more votes than Ed Gillespie, who was the Republican nominee in 2017. So I think looking at that stat from TargetSmart about older voters turning out at a much higher rate, like all that adds up when you just look at those top line shifts. Right. Like 2017 isn't a neutral baseline. It's an extremely Democratic leaning baseline. So taking all of this, it sounds like the answer is no, but correct me if not. Should we reassess the narratives we've taken away from the race in Virginia last year? I I know it was a while ago at this point, but I think lessons from that race may inform how Democrats and Republicans behave going into the midterms this fall. Should this new data be caused to reassess anything? Should it give us even more certainty in some of the narratives we took away from Virginia? I don't think there's anything persuasive in this memo. I think it's probably true that, like any election, the assessment of the Virginia governor's race gets stylized and oversimplified, right? Like the average person in political media probably ascribes a huge amount of importance to education when it was probably moderately important instead, among a lot of other issues reverberating the race. Maybe moderately important enough to to swing the race. It was a close race. So I think there was overattribution to education to begin with, but like the points that this memo makes are specious. Yeah. As I said at the outset, it's trying to push back against this idea that education isn't actually a factor at all. We know that's not true. That's not a smart take from Virginia. But at the same time, I think the one redeeming factor, particularly in the chalkbeat analysis, is it did try to control for someone's political preferences. It found an effect. It was a small effect. And while I think all three of us are telling you, don't put a precise number on the role that education played in Virginia, that's probably generally the right read here, right? Like it was an important issue. It's not completely responsible for the two-point shift. Remember, New Jersey was close. Education didn't get the same level of attention. Like there are other factors here. But yeah, this shouldn't be like, now let's discount that Democrats are kind of losing on education as an issue and should be concerned about that moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think the analysis as a whole, the second part, shows how important the issue of differential turnout can be, like in terms of affecting the result. However, I don't think that that means that there was no persuasion going on. To Nate's point, from the exit poll data, you know, there's a small number of people who said they voted for Biden in 2020 who said that they voted for Youngkin. And in a close race, you know, a two-point race, that small group, even if it's not a lot of people at the end of the day, Um, who are persuaded or switch sides, you know, however you want to term it, that's an important group in a closely fought election, you know, and education may have played a role in why they moved the way they did. So I I think the narrative coming out of Virginia was not disproven by this. All right. Well, with that governor's race in the rearview mirror, let's look ahead to some of this fall's governor's races. But first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. As I mentioned at the top, 36 of the nation's governors are up for election this fall. And today, we're going to focus in particular on some states where the race will decide full control of state government or where election integrity is in the spotlight. Republican governors in Arizona and Georgia took heat for backing up their state's election results in 2020. In 2022, it's an open race in Arizona because Governor Doug Ducey is term limited. In Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp is being primaried by David Perdue, who, contrary to Kemp, argues that the state's 2020 election results were fraudulent. Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania all have Republican-controlled legislatures and Democratic governors. In Wisconsin and Michigan, incumbents will be running, and in Pennsylvania, Tom Wolf is term-limited. So full control of government could determine lots of political debates, but perhaps most imminently how those states conduct elections and process their results. So before we begin talking about the details of these races and how competitive they may or may not be, Jeffrey, you've recently done this analysis. What do we know about how accurate polls are this far out from a midterm election when it comes to governor's races? Right. So as you might imagine, early polls are not as good as polls at the end, but I don't think we should necessarily throw them out either. Basically, this analysis that I did with Nathaniel Rakich, which is publishing uh, soon at 538, The average error in gubernatorial polls conducted in the first six months of the election year came out to about eight and a half percentage points. So that's not, you know, especially precise, but it's also not necessarily that much worse uh, than the polls in the last three weeks, which had a weighted average error of about 5.4 points based on analysis we did previously um, from 1998 to 2020. And there's a really strong relationship between the polling average in a race even in the first six months and what the final result was in that race. So I think for a race that's close in the polls right now, um, I think we know that it's a close race and it could end up being very close in the end. But for a race where maybe a candidate has like a seven or eight point lead right now, that might be a sign that Uh, at the end of the day, they're probably going to win or at least more likely to win, clearly. And then someone who's got like a double digit lead, well, they're probably in decent shape, (laughs) to say the least, to win re-election. So, you know, it's not like you can take these polls to the bank, but you can't sort of ignore them either. You know, a candidate who's down by like eight right now is in a tough spot. Okay, so let's look at some of these states that I mentioned. We can maybe group them together a little bit. In both Michigan and Wisconsin, Democratic governors are defending their seats. How competitive do those states look at this point? Very competitive. In Wisconsin, in fairness, there are no recent polls, but Evers, you know, as the Democratic governor there, Republican-controlled legislature in a Republican-leaning midterm environment, you know, it's been a 
contentious relationship, to say the least, between Evers and the legislature. And so will likely be a very competitive race. There haven't been any here in 2022. And then in Michigan, Whitmer is in the lead for some of the general election polls we have, but very narrowly. And again, back to what Jeffrey was saying, you know, one thing from early governor polls is if it shows a close race at this point, then that's really all we can say in terms of where we expect that race to go moving forward. What do the Republican primaries look like in both of those states? Is it a competitive primary? Does someone seem to be running away with the nomination? Well, to some extent, both of these races, there is something of a clear frontrunner at this point for the Republican nomination. So in Michigan, you have the former chief of police of Detroit, uh, James Craig, who seems to be you know the frontrunner. Um, in Wisconsin, you have the former lieutenant governor, uh, Rebecca Cleefish, who was Scott Walker's lieutenant governor for eight years. So I think that's a little different from some of the other races we're going to talk about, where you have, in some cases, super competitive and unclear primaries. It is true that Cleefish does have a notable opponent now in Kevin Nicholson, who ran for the Senate in 2018, but lost in the Republican primary. But I think at the end of the day, Cleefish is, is viewed as the front runner and will probably end up being the nominee. Of course, these are two states that Biden won in 2020, but that Trump and some Republican politicians, state-level politicians even, have made a big stink about election integrity there, falsely essentially saying that the elections in those states were fraudulent. What role is election integrity playing in those states? So someone like Cleefish initially said that Biden had won the presidential election. But I think as Jeffrey's getting at, now that that race is getting a bit more competitive, she is kind of backtracking and backpedaling that. So for instance, when she was asked about it directly most recently, she said, yes, he was declared the winner in Wisconsin. You know, the question now is whether he was won fairly or not, because there are ongoing audits in the state. And that she cannot say. That was what a spokesperson told the Associated Press in February when they were kind of following up that story. And then similarly, Craig in Michigan has also not taken a firm stance on whether he thought the 2020 election was accurate. And, you know, something we're trying to do here at 538 in the lead up for these primaries is categorizing the different stances that Republican candidates are taking on this. And one suspicion I have. We've only got Texas primary data at this point, but is we're going to have a number of Republicans that fall into this, I'm just asking questions territory. So they're raising concerns about the 2020 election, but they're not explicitly saying it was illegitimate. Or you're going to have people like Cleefish who, you know, said Biden won, but, and, you know, now kind of following it up as the months drag on, we get closer to the election to kind of raise concerns around election integrity. I mean, both of these candidates are trying to win a Republican primary. So if they're kind of being ambiguous now, then maybe by the general election, they shift back towards saying that Biden won their states. Both of these strike me as relatively strong potential candidates. You know, Craig is a former police chief, actually a former Democrat, too, it turns out. You have someone kind of the Scott Walker mold. He did win three elections. And Wisconsin is actually a slightly red-leaning state relative to the country, Overall, so, I mean, these are races where you're going to see probably very competitive races. When it comes to election integrity, ultimately, does it seem like in these states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and then we'll get to it, but also Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Georgia, are the kind of places where the Republicans who are now running for governor 
would give more credence to or even try to overrule the results of a future presidential election? I mean, I think it's pretty speculative on that last point, but I think they would be more likely to give credence because their base gives credence. And, you know, if they're appealing to their base of support, they're going to at least come out. I mean, I see Craig has written an op-ed basically saying, you know, he supports auditing the 2020 elections. Maybe that's a safer place for him to occupy saying, you know, I'm in favor of investigating things without saying explicitly the election was stolen or something, you know, language of that sort. So to me, it's inevitably someone in that position is going to give at least some more credence to claims that the election was illegitimate or something. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go all the way on that perspective, but many people who support them, people they appoint to some positions, you know, may hold a stronger opinion on that. And it's a real spectrum, too, of candidates running and where they kind of stand on this issue within the GOP. I mean, I think we have, if I'm not mistaken, like six different categories for where they fall on the 2020 election. And, you know, right now we've talked about Michigan and Wisconsin, but within Georgia, you have someone like former Senator Perdue, who is challenging now Brian Kemp in that role because Kemp upheld the election in Georgia. And so presumably one could kind of think about Perdue, if he were to win, being a bit more radical on this issue than someone like Kemp. And similarly in Arizona, you know, that's an open election. But there again, Carrie Lake, who has Trump's endorsement, has been much more vocal about she wouldn't have certified Biden's 2020 victory. And so I think for small d democracy, you know, it kind of goes back to this lie that the Republican Party has fed its voters of like, yes, we need to examine election integrity. Like, yes, we're not saying that Biden didn't necessarily win, but we need to examine the vote. Study after study has shown that like, There wasn't enough fraud there for that to happen. And the party, though, is not backpedaling on that. So there's no question that on like the small scale de-democracy, even if the most extreme voices of the party don't win on this issue. And for instance, in Texas, some of the biggest big lie supporters did not win their elections. It's still, though, you're seeing then this massaging of the message and TBD on how some of these candidates will then pivot back towards the middle in the general. That's a smart assumption, maybe, but not necessarily true of all of these candidates. You wouldn't expect For instance, Purdue to make that pivot back were he to win the Republican primary. So, yeah, this is not overall good for like the health of elections, the health of believing in American elections being held accurately. I don't think to rank and file voters that maybe with Georgia being the exception, that election integrity issues are necessarily that front (laughs) and center. So it's kind of worth keeping in mind that these candidates are trying to calibrate a very conservative GOP primary electorate without undermining themselves too much in the general election should they win. I mean, I think even Purdue would be somebody who would hedge or backtrack a little bit more. I mean, I'm not sure in either direction that statements the candidates make now predicts how they would behave if they actually had the the keys in the ignition. I would want to try to find candidates who I think are true believers, who actually believe it sincerely, because I think they'd be the most likely to act in a similar circumstance, or who are just very ruthless and think it might be politically convenient for them to do so. But like, in the end of the day, it is important to keep in mind, I'm someone who's very worried about like threats to democracy in 2024, 2028, maybe even 2022 in some ways. We still don't know how Republicans would behave if they actually have the opportunity. In 2020, they ultimately backed off. It's hard to predict, I think. So, 
we've looked closely at Wisconsin and Michigan. Pennsylvania is a completely open race because the Democratic governor, Tom Wolf, is term limited. How is that race shaping up compared to what we've discussed so far? You've got a much more wide open primary there on the Republican side, whereas there's like front runners in the Michigan and Wisconsin races. You've got just a whole host of candidates running for governor on the GOP side, where the Democrats basically all rallying around the state attorney general, Josh Shapiro. But Republicans, you've got like Lou Barletta, who actually lost the 2018 Senate race as a former member of the U.S. House. Like in terms of what we're talking about, the state of small D democracy and who might present a danger, you do have like Doug Mastriano, who's a state senator, who I believe was at the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Like he was actually physically there and has definitely had a strong line of, you know, the election was like illegitimate. And then there are a lot of other candidates running too. And and those two, neither of them might end up being the nominee, uh, to be clear, but they are definitely in the mix for winning the nomination. And Barletta definitely had a a very strong Trumpy edge to his politics. He, He got his start in local politics in Northeast Pennsylvania, basically pushing against undocumented immigrants. So it's if you're looking for sort of a pro-Trump candidate, he also would would very much fit the bill there. It's a pretty wide open race, though. So I, I don't think anyone knows exactly how it's going to play out. Barletta has been endorsed by Steve Bannon. So, you know, that helps you calibrate things a little bit here. So it might be hard to pull a race where it's not clear which candidates you would necessarily have running against each other. But do we have any sense of how competitive Pennsylvania will be? Other than, hey, it'll be competitive. I mean, I think the default expectation should be that it's going to be competitive. I don't really think we have much of any general election polling that's recent. But just given the nature of the state, like Michigan and Wisconsin, Pennsylvania is a state that is slightly right of the country as a whole, but obviously has been a really key swing state. So in a Republican-leaning midterm environment, open seat, even though Shapiro seems like a really strong Democratic candidate— you know, in a, in a Republican-leaning environment, without that incumbency pool, you know, Republicans could very well win the governorship, maybe regardless of who they nominate. Though I do think it definitely matters to some extent whether they nominate someone like Mastriano or, or someone else. That could make a big difference in the end. But I think the default assumption is that it's going to be relatively close. So Elaine Godfrey of The Atlantic had this piece, um, and granted, it's just on the Arizona governor race and Secretary of State Katie Hobbs run there. But the headline is, she defended democracy, do voters care? And then, you know, goes on to kind of talk about, essentially, that's all that Hobbs's platform is at this point. And if you talk to various focus groups, voters are kind of saying, hey, like, that's not enough. There were questions about how charismatic is she versus the GOP's candidates who are running. And I think we've been focusing a lot in this section on the role democracy is playing in this race, because there are stark choices in these races, and those do have implications. But I think it goes back to what Nate was saying, earlier about how much are voters really caring about this issue. And then in a state like Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Michigan, where, yes, it's like slightly Republican leaning, looks like a good Republican environment. I think it is a really fair question then to be pushing on, well, what else are these Democrats trying to run on other than democracy? Because in Gallup's, you know, top priority, what issues are affecting voters the most? Only 1% said recently elections. 1% prioritizing that issue and that being the only issue your candidate is really kind of running on, 
is probably not going to be enough, particularly in a midterm environment that looks favorable for Republicans. I'm inclined to think that in governor's races, that candidate quality matters a fair bit. You know, if you have a Senate race and Republicans nominate someone who's very right-wing or reactionary Trumpist candidate, there are going to be some voters who are like, I don't like everything this person stands for, but at the end of the day, they're going to be a vote to confirm the Supreme Court justices I like and so forth, and therefore I'll go along with that. In the state, I mean, I guess um, counting the vote is one big exception, but apart from that, they only have jurisdiction over statewide affairs, and so I think it's a little bit, it's a little bit harder for a bad quote-unquote candidate to win a governor's race than to win a race for, for Congress where kind of the label by your name is 90% of it. It's not as true in a governor's race. And so I, I do think that there is no incumbency advantage here. But this is a race where just based on the candidates, if you had me pick, I would probably say I would pick Shapiro to win, even though, you know, it's probably going to be a Republican leaning environment because I think candidate quality probably matters enough in contexts like this. What about in Arizona and Georgia? Those states currently have incumbent Republican governors. They are states that only recently have statewide elected Democrats, and of course not in to the governor's mansion, but to the Senate. How competitive are those environments? I mean, I think in both cases, there is at least some general election polling, which suggests they look to be highly competitive, but these are also two states that are even slightly more Republican-leaning than the three that we just talked about. Why would it then be highly competitive? If it's more Republican than, so Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, they have incumbent Republicans. This is going to be a Republican-leaning environment. I mean, we saw that both New Jersey and Virginia swung by 12 points last year. I mean, I don't think anyone says that that's going to be the overall environment come this fall. But like, is there any real reason that Democrats should even think that they could win in those two states? Well, I think I think this gets back to Nate's point about candidate quality actually potentially mattering a bit more in these sorts of races. We know that while Senate and House races are extremely nationalized today, if you're voting for a, a Democrat for one, you're probably voting for a Democrat for the other, or for president, uh, if it's the same year as a presidential cycle. Governors' races have become more nationalized. You know, really red states are unlikely to, you know, elect a Democrat, for instance. But there is at least a little more room for maneuver there. And so if you had an especially bad Republican candidate, say in Arizona, you know, it's possible Democrats could win even in a Republican-leaning environment. So I think what we see right now is that the early polling does show a very close race between Katie Hobbs, who's sort of the – she's not presumptive because she actually does have a Democratic primary to win, but she's probably going to be the Democratic nominee. She's the Secretary of State in Arizona. And then Carrie Lake, who's the front runner on the Republican side – um, you know, the polls show a pretty close race, but it's early. And as we just talked about, there's an average error of eight and a half points. So if right now there's a poll tied, would it stun me if Lake won by eight and a half at the end of the day? No. But I think that there is reason to believe that Lake might be a weaker candidate than, you know, an average Republican or something. So maybe that gives Hobbs an opening. Now, Georgia's harder, I think, because Georgia, I think it's harder for a Democrat to win in this environment because Georgia is already a really inelastic state. It's highly racially polarized voting, large black electorate that votes heavily Democratic. Most white voters vote Republican. Maybe that shifts a little bit in the, in the suburbs around Atlanta where there are some more white Democrats. 
But on the whole, you're operating sort of in the smaller bounds, like upper and lower bounds for the two candidates. So for Abrams, who you know lost narrowly in 2018 in a Democratic-leaning environment, can Stacey Abrams come back and win in 2022 in what is going to very likely be a Republican-leaning environment? I think that's really tough, just given what we know about that state and how it's very much like three yards in a cloud of dust, to make a football analogy. So I, I do think that it's it's kind of harder to see there because I, I think Arizona's electorate is just a bit more elastic. It's a bit more unpredictable, comparatively speaking. Another reason why, though, Galen, like even though both Georgia and Arizona are redder in our partisan lean metric than Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, I think what we saw in 2020 and leading up to that election was these Sunbelt states overall are kind of shifting more towards Democrats than the former Rust Belt states. Like you saw some reversion from 2016 in 2020 back towards Democrats after they'd moved so far towards Republicans. But like the overall shifts, particularly in suburban areas, um, as Jeffrey was getting at in Atlanta and that area is more favorable to Democrats. Doesn't mean that here in 2022 that that'll be the best environment for Democrats. But keep in mind, you know, we talk about 2021. At the start of the year, Democrats won two Senate seats in Georgia. Obviously, a very different environment by the time we got to Virginia and New Jersey, but we are still, you know, quite a ways away here from November. I think in Arizona, I would be surprised if Carrie Lake wins by eight points. I mean, she has been associated with a lot of pretty fringe figures and causes on election integrity and and COVID and a bunch of other stuff. She has not been elected to anything before. She's a former television anchor. I think this is a profile of someone who underforms the fundamentals by a lot, to be honest. And you think Hobbs wins, Nate? Or you're saying that she won't even clear the primary? I mean, those positions are popular enough within, within Republicans, but like there is a lot to work with there if you're Katie Hobbs. I'm not saying that she would have it in the bag. I mean, there hasn't been much polling in the race, but like, but as someone who believes in candidate quality and someone who believes that being toward the center is helpful, I mean, Carrie Lake is not good in those dimensions. So how much does Georgia depend on the primary there in that case? If David Perdue were to beat Brian Kemp in the Republican primary, which I think we're all going to be watching very closely because that's a very high profile test of what Republican primary voters are thinking about election integrity, for example, or how they're processing the 2020 election now in the 2022 midterms. But if David Perdue were to win, is that race also then suddenly truly competitive? I mean, I think if you look at the polls that have been conducted in Georgia testing Abrams against Kemp, the current governor, and Abrams against Purdue, Kemp's primary challenger. They're pretty similar, but Abrams does tend to do slightly better against Purdue. So, you know, if you're thinking about this from a who's most likely to win on the Republican side, you know, Kemp is probably the better choice. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, we don't know how the Republican primary is going to shake out. And, you know, at the end of the day, Purdue could win the nomination and he could very well in that situation going to beat Abrams in the general election. So I think it's, you're talking about small differences here, but if it's a really close election, small differences obviously matter. Yeah, I think that's kind of the, I was in uh, in Georgia recently, that was kind of the conventional wisdom of political observers there, that if Kemp wins the primary, that's pretty tough for Abrams in a GOP-leaning year, but that Purdue is a mediocre candidate, and that would be very competitive. So I think I endorse the conventional wisdom in this case. 
All right. Well, we have plenty of other gubernatorial races that we could talk about, and we can also dig deeper into the different platforms that the candidates are running on. Of course, how they would process elections in their state is not the only political question, as you all have mentioned here. There are lots of other things being debated, as we mentioned in the second segment, for example, education, still COVID policies, approaches to different aspects of the culture wars, things like that. So we will continue the conversation and we will also, of course, keep track as the polling gets more accurate and switches from an eight and a half point average polling error to a five and a half point average polling error. So stay tuned. But for now, thank you, Sarah, Jeff, and Nate. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari-Curtis is on audio editing. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. And Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.